Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would guide us into all truth, bringing to mind those things that you have for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Before I get into our text, which is in Mark 5, and I encourage you to look at your pew Bibles now and get ready for it. It's on uh, page 840. A couple of things I want to share <coughs> at the beginning. Today is GAFCON Sunday. What is GAFCON? Well, in 2008, there was a conference entitled the Global Anglican Future Conference, which got turned in the a- into the acronym GAFCON. It was a gathering of Anglicans from around the world to sort out how best to respond to some things that were happening in in the United States and Canada particularly. And without going into all the details, in the midst of that conference, there had been a number of uh, Anglicans from around the world who had adopted many churches here. So for example, I may not look it, but for a period of time, I was a Ugandan. Uh, and that was true for many of us. Rwanda, Uganda, par- parts of Southeast Asia, parts of Latin America adopted churches for, or fostered churches in a period of time as we were trying to figure out what the next step would be. In the midst of that conference, the Anglicans from around the world suggested that we have what has now become the Anglican Church in North America, the group that we're a part of. So we have Mother's Day honor the mothers that took care of us, Father's Day honoring our parents. GAFCON Sunday is the day we honor those who are foster parents uh, in the midst of uh, taking us in until we were able to be on our own. But the ministry of GAFCON has continued, not just a conference anymore, but lots of uh, ways that we are learning to help each other, serve each other, serve those particularly in need. And so Ben will say more about this when we get to the offertory, but Uh, We try to have one Sunday a year where we remember what uh, the rest of the church has done for us, but also help in the larger ministry that we're sharing together. Uh, Right now, our own Archbishop Foley Beach is the head of GAFCON. Uh, He wasn't when it began, obviously, Uh, but he has that additional responsibility. So we are connected to Anglicans throughout the world, especially through the GAFCON organization uh, that began 13 years ago. So pray and give. We had a great passage in Second Corinthians about the importance of giving to those in need. And GAFCON is in need if we're going to continue the ministry, particularly the ministry of meeting needs educationally and in terms of relief and those kind of things that the churches around the world have. It says in that passage, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And that's what we would be asking you to do, to give uh, what you can of your own accord. The other thing I want to say at the beginning is that I had an interesting experience a few weeks ago. I went to the Trinity School for Ministries seminary graduation up in the Pittsburgh area. And it was an interesting graduation because of COVID. The, there had been no previous uh, graduation the year before, obviously. And so they actually had both classes graduating together. Um, and in the midst of that, each of the class presidents uh, gave a little talk, and one woman ra- pointed out the importance of relationships 
uh, in the Christian life, and she did so by telling the story <coughs> of a professor of hers who'd said, name five sermons that have changed your life. Think about it and name five sermons. Turn to the person next to you and name five sermons. And she said it was a very difficult exercise. People had a hard time coming up with, with five. Then the professor said, well, name five people who had a massive impact on your Christian life. Well, that was much easier. And so that was shared among the class. And the point that the class president was making is the importance of our relationships, not just of the information that we learned. Valid point. There was only one downside to her sharing that, which is I was about to preach the graduation sermon. <laughs> There was part of me that said, let me just talk to a few of you later. <laughs> but I've been reflecting on what she said since then and thinking about sermons. And I think the thing that she was overlooking in that example, and she was making a particular point, is that there's a cumulative effect of sermons and of reading. Uh, things get planted in us and we don't remember the source. I've been rereading C.S. Lewis's book, The Mere Christianity, which is one of the first books I read when I had come to faith in, in uh, the end of high school. And I keep coming to passages where I go, oh, that's where I learned that. I had no memory that it was from Mere Christianity. It's just something I had believed. I think sermons are like that, too. So I think one thing about sermons is there's a cumulative impact. And, the, and certainly in Anglican tradition, for those of you who are outside of it wondering what we're doing with all those Bible readings, there's also a conviction that it's not all up to the preacher, that there may be something in a scripture that's being read that day that's going to speak into somebody's life that may have nothing to do with the sermon. Uh, so listen carefully. That happened to me in a service once where something from the scriptures was read and it radically changed uh, a decision I had to make. But I think the other problem with sermons is that we listen wrongly. We try to remember the whole thing. And I, I'll be honest with you, may, Ben uh, or Link may be different, but I can get to a Wednesday or Thursday and not remember my whole sermon uh, afterwards. You know, four days since I preached it. If anybody knew it, it should be me. So I encourage you when you're listening to a sermon, listen for one challenge or one new thought one word of the Lord to you through the words of the preacher who is sharing the scriptures with you. So I encourage you today to listen hard for the word of the Lord to you today. And I encourage you to do that uh, every time you hear the word preached. The scriptures can change our lives because Jesus is in us working to transform us. That's what he's about. C.S. Lewis, uh, that author that I mentioned a moment ago, Christian author, said, the real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought into you. Beginning to turn the tin soldier, that's the image he's been using, into a live man. The part of you that does not like it is the part that is still tin. So we should be expecting God to speak in a transformational way when we hear God's word preached. So come with this, to this sermon and all sermons listening for the one thing the Lord wants you to really get.
you may pick up other things along the way. The story we heard this morning includes the story of a little girl, and we'll get to that in the, uh, a little bit, uh, a little girl at the point of death. But it reminded me of an experience that we had years ago when our daughter Katie was probably seven or eight, and she inhaled a hard candy, and it all of a sudden wasn't breathing. Fortunately, my wife Marsha was there and ran over and did, you know, the traditional Heimlich maneuver, uh, or maybe she picked her up by the feet and shook her, I don't know. But in any case, the, uh, the candy came out, Katie could breathe again. She called her best friend, a girl named Jessica, to tell her, I, this was amazing, I'm okay. I almost died, but I'm all right. She was so excited, she wanted to tell her best friend. Jessica had a slight competitive edge to her, and her response is, oh, that's nothing. I've died lots of times. <laughs> I've almost died lots of times. Well, the two powerful gospel mir miracles this morning about two people facing death, one imminent death and one eventual death. And I want to enter into their wor world emotionally for a minute, so I'm going to ask you to think for a moment of a potentially fatal medical emergency where time was of the essence. Someone in your life, in your background, your experience. I think of what if my daughter had died at the, in that story? What if my wife had not been there? Who comes to mind when I ask you that question? Maybe that person didn't make it. Think about the emotions of loss. Or maybe they did, and the emotions of them being saved. These are life and death stories we're going to be entering into this morning. And sometimes we can just read them as, as Bible stories and not really engage with them. But imagine the emotions that are going on in the stories you're about to hear. Now think of someone with a long-term illness. How did it affect them physically? What limitations did it bring? What did it do to their finances and to their emotions? We have two stories, one of death and one of uh, potential death that we heard this morning in Mark chapter 5. We look first at the story of a man named Jairus. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He has a young daughter, 12 years old. Another gospel tells us that the, she's his only child. She's dying. And she hears that Jesus is around. And so as a last hope, he gets to Jesus and asks him to come and, and save his daughter. And then Jesus starts heading in his direction. But along the way, there's an interruption by another woman. Look at Mark 5.25. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Hemorrhaging for some reason for 12 years. And remember, we're in a culture where there is no surgery, there's no x-rays, there's no anesthetic, uh, anesthetics. Anything they might have done for her that would have solved the problem would probably have killed her. She's impoverished by this illness. And Jesus was her last hope, too. 
and it tells us that she touches Jesus' robe. Luke is more specific because there's more going on here. Jesus is a faithful Jew. Everything we know about him, he was being faithful uh, to the Old Testament, to the, to the uh, scriptures of the Old Testament. And in Numbers 15, it says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. So they had a special fringe with tassels around the bottoms of their garments or the corners of their garments. It was a fringe. Can also be translated wing. Now, over time, if you know Judaism at all, you know that it's simply a prayer shawl with those kind of fringes. They're not doing it to every garment they're wearing, but they still carry on that tradition. So she's touching the fringe or the wings or the corners or the tassels of Jesus' garment, which were the marks of a, a Jewish man trying to live a holy life. Why would she do that? Why would that matter? Well, this is a guess, but several people have seen this before. It comes from Malachi, last book in the Old Testament as we have it, uh, a book that's prophesying, uh, looking ahead to the day of the Lord, and points specifically to the fact that Elijah is going to come first, and Jesus identifies later John the Baptist as being that Elijah appearance. But in the midst of that, as it's promising a new day for the people of Israel, it says this, Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Well, imagine the sun rising and you see sun rays going out. You can see why they would be called wings, but it's the same word for that fringe. And it's very likely that she understood the verse, if, if, if God has come in the flesh in Jesus and there's healing in the fringes, that's what she's going to reach for. Now, I know this sounds far-fetched, but in Mark 5, it says this, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. In Luke, it's clear that it's the fringes. Um, and in Luke 8:44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. It worked. There was healing in the fringes. There were healing in the wings. And she's commended for her faith by Jesus. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Powerful story of the miraculous power of Jesus to heal, pointing to his... Uh, reality as the Son of God, God in the flesh. Now, can you imagine her joy? Can you imagine her sense of a new life beginning, her hope of being re-included in the community? Because if you are bleeding continually, you are unclean, not like a leper in the sense that you're contagious, but unclean ceremonially, ceremonially. And if you touch somebody, they're unclean. They have to go through ritual bathing. This is a woman who had to be isolated to some degree, but now she can be re-included. It's a wonderful story, but what about the girl? We started with Jairus' daughter. How would Jairus feel when Jesus stopped to tackle what 
that leads to Jairus would seem like a minor incident compared to his, his dying daughter. And then they get there to the Jairus' house and it's too late and they're told that the daughter's dead. Jesus sees people weeping and wailing. And Jesus enters in 539. When he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They don't accept that. That sounds like foolishness to them. But then he does two things. He goes into the room with Peter, James, and John, who are with him, and the parents of the girl, closes the door, apparently, or at least is alone with them. And anybody who had an Old Testament memory would immediately think of the story of Elijah, who goes into a room of a dead boy and raises him to life. And like Elijah, Jesus doesn't give up on this girl, but he touches a dead body. And he could have been ritually unclean, but he reaches out and grabs her hand. And guess what? His touch brings life. So rather than him being made unclean, she's made alive. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Now, this caught me as interesting. Note that the little girl at age 12 had lived just as long as the woman with the issue of blood had been bleeding. Her whole, the whole life of the little girl covered the illness of the other woman, two together. Well, what can be learned from these stories? First of all, we should see the compassion of Jesus, which ignores the busy crowd around him as he, sto- as he turns and faces the woman who's been healed. And he also ignores those who are doubting that he can do anything for this dead girl. The person in need is Jesus' agenda. And this compassion is tied to what might be called, and I'm making up the word, his interruptibility. Jesus seems to be traveling at the pace of needs. Now, I don't know about you, but how do, I know how I react when I'm interrupted. It's not pretty. But Jesus is continually interrupted. You could argue that he had a life of interruption. Some of you know the name Henry Nouwen, a Roman Catholic uh, writer. Uh, and he, uh, Nouwen wrote this at one point. He said, a few years ago, I met an old professor at the University of Notre Dame. Looking back on his long life of teaching, he said with a funny wrinkle in his eyes, I have always been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I slowly discovered that my interruptions were my work. Now it goes on to say, this is the great conversion in our life to recognize and believe that the many unexpected events are not just disturbing interruptions of our projects, but the way in which God molds our hearts and prepares us for his return. So are you traveling at the pace of needs with an openness to interruption? But secondly, please note, Jesus could be late even allowing the little girl to die because from his perspective, death is sleeping. The awaiting of a 
awakening later to new life. Remember, Lazarus dies, and Jesus says to Martha, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She's got a dead brother in a tomb. And Jesus is saying, this is not the end of the story. And of course, he raises Lazarus back to life. But do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and life? Do you believe that he can wake up those who are sleeping in death. Today we're receiving several of you. It's a great honor to be a part of that. You are proclaiming your faith publicly that you believe that Jesus is indeed the Lord, the resurrection, and the life. A few days ago, my wife Marcia and I were talking with a good friend of ours who had lost her husband. She had been newly married and during the honeymoon discovered that he had <coughs> terminal cancer. She stayed by his side, cared for him. Uh, he died after a couple of years. And she's wrestling with how life feels to her. Because it does feel, and it has, certainly has, elements of a tragedy. But I thought with her for a moment, the definition of tragedy and the definition of comedy, the, it's defined by the ending of the story. It's a man in 1125 named William of Conscience, Conscious, who said that tragedy begins in prosperity and, and ends in adversity. Tragedy begins in prosperity and ends in adversity, going downhill. Whereas comedy is the opposite. It begins in adversity and ends in prosperity or has a happy ending. Now, I don't want to downplay the pain of our friend or of anyone here who's struggling with heartache. And these stories are tough stories of a girl with, who's dying and a woman with a long-term illness. But at the deepest level, our lives are comedies, if we believe in Jesus. We begin in a tragic world, and we end in the presence of God. All those who have died in the hope of Christ who live with him forever. And we get a sense of the resurrecting power of Jesus, a taste of that in these two stories. Do you see death the way Jesus sees death? Close by the fact that a, a week or so ago I was at a provincial council that was held at the Billy Graham Center up in uh, the Asheville, North Carolina area. And it, there are pictures of Billy all over the wall, of course, and little news clips and that kind of thing is to be expected. But it reminded me as I was there of one of his most famous quotes, this world-famous evangelist. Graham said this, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Death is not the final word. It is a turn of the page in our lives. And our griefs will be extinguished extinguished by being in the presence of Jesus,
and by our reunions with all those who we have loved that went before us. Do you know this in your heart of hearts? Jesus' death and resurrection secures our resurrections. And I'll close with the words of J.I. Packer, Anglican theologian who died uh, in the last couple of years. We talked earlier, some of us, about the catechism. He was the editor of our catechism, and I had the privilege of working with him. Packer wrote this, a British professor of theology once described to me the world to which believers will go as, quote, an unknown country with a well-known inhabitant. What a great description of heaven. We don't know what heaven's going to be like, but we know who's there. We know Jesus is there. When Jesus the courier has already become well known to us through the New Testament, the prospect of transitioning with him into a world in which we shall see him as he is and be constantly in his company will be something we find alluring rather than alarming. That's what we have ahead of us. So do you have a life of interruptibility? Are you traveling at the pace of needs? And finally, do you have the life of hope that death, from God's perspective, really is only sleeping, awaiting resurrection as we will live in the presence of the Lord? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for these stories of the Gospels of the tremendous compassion and power of your Son. And we pray that you would encourage each one of us to understand that there is hope ahead and therefore we can live lives interrupted by others because this is not all there is to life. Help us to demonstrate your compassion in the incidents that come our way. Empower us to be like Jesus and then help us have confidence that we will see him face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In, um,